Today we're going to start a series. We're going to be studying through the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to find that Peter uh, has a real unique perspective on things. I don't know if you've ever read through 1 Peter. Uh, you probably have. Many of you have. Uh, but we're going to take a look at today in the introduction about the cultural context and the historical context that he's writing from. And he calls us to be different. Different. Uh, so many times I think we try to fit in, don't we? You know, try not to be too Christian or too, you know, out of the norm. Uh, but today, uh, I want to draw your attention to the fact that we are called to be different. And really, what we're called to be different in is when we're facing trials. Today, we're called to be different people when we face trials. How many of you have ever faced a trial in your life? Okay, maybe a health issue, maybe a relational issue. Okay, <laughs> maybe all of them, you know, all of those things. Uh, some people are today... Uh, young couples are trying to have children, but they can't. You know, they can't conceive, and so they have a trial there. They really desperately uh, want to have children. Uh, so it might be a financial obstacle. You know, you just don't have enough money to pay the bills. And so that becomes a financial struggle. You say, you know, how many of you were, have ever heard anybody say, well, if you just become a Christian, all your problems would fade away? <laughs> uh, now, wait a minute. How many of you have ever heard anybody say that? Okay, you've heard them say that. How many of you, <laughs> this is going to be more telling, how many of you have ever said that? Okay, yeah. Uh, sometimes I, I find that people, you know, say, you know, if you just become a Christian, all your troubles will go away. That's not true. Uh, what did Jesus say in, in John 16, 33? Anybody know? In this world, you will have trouble. He says, but take heart. I've overcome the world. You know, you're not going to die in that trouble, but you're going to have trouble. So I'm going to tell you here today, <laughs> aren't you glad you came to church? Uh, you're going to have trouble. In this world, you're going to have trouble. Why will we have trouble? Because we're called to be different from the culture. And that will cause a troublesome situation. And so there are people out there that are having trouble. Um, some of us, uh, no, not a, I shouldn't say that. Uh, my kids are not here today. Uh, maybe I can say that. Um, but, but sometimes you have kids that don't make wise decisions, right? Have you, anybody ever heard that? You know, your kids didn't make a wise decision. You, how many of you were a kid that didn't make a wise decision? Yeah, all of us. And so... At the end of all of that trial and tribulation, the stuff of life, you feel what? Helpless. You kind of feel helpless. Is that a good situation for Christians to feel? No. Helpless? No. Yeah, no. I knew we could divide the crowd right off the bat. Yeah, no. Uh, I'm gonna, let's take a look at that. Okay. Um, let's take a look at the context of 1 Peter, first of all. Uh, who knows what, who wrote 1 Peter? Oh, wait a minute. Spoiler alert coming up. Okay. Who wrote 1 Peter? First. You know, Peter did. You're right. Um, yeah, you, you, you missed that one. Okay. Now, uh, Peter, Peter is often described as what? Uneducated. Not a bright man. You know, and he was just a what? What did he do for a living? He was a fisherman. He, he liked to fish, and he was a fisherman. And so he's a fisherman, uneducated. People didn't recognize him as a scholar. And so, therefore, they kind of downplayed much of what he said. But when he writes in First Peter... He's going to talk about some really, really interesting because he's uneducated, but he's a very sharp man. He's very bright. In fact, many of the most intellectual, I shouldn't say intellectual, I should say brightest people you will meet are probably people without a college education. People that are self-learners, you know, lifelong self-learners. They know stuff. And so therefore, that's kind of what first, first Peter, that's what Peter is all about. He's a very sharp man. In fact, he writes to hurting Christians. He writes about some very... Weighty issues in First Peter. He talks about election. He talks about foreknowledge. He talks about sanctification. He talks about obedience. Now he talks about the blood of Christ. He talks about the Trinity. He talks about grace. He talks about revelation. He talks about hope. 
He talks about some very weighty issues of the Christian faith, but he was not an extremely educated man, but a very, very bright man. Now, 1 Peter was probably written between 60 and 63 AD. So some couple of generations after Jesus, uh, maybe one full generation after his death. And so we find uh, that we come to a place where we have to look at the history. Uh, what context, what historical context was Peter writing in? And how many of you know who was the emperor of Rome at the time? Starts with an N and it is not hero, it is Nero. Okay, Nero. Now, anybody know anything about Nero? He's a bad man. He's a bad man. In fact, uh, he had his own mom killed. I don't know if you've ever wanted to do that, uh, but you might want to, you know, you shouldn't. Don't do that. Okay, he wanted to have... Now, he got married, and he had his first wife killed. You know, you think you'd sign up to be the second wife of Nero? No, a lady did, and it's purported, and it's not for sure, but he probably had her killed as well. Uh, Christians were facing extreme persecution under Nero. In fact, he would take animal skins and he would put them over Christians, you know, like wolf skins or whatever, and put them over Christians. They put them in a cage and then he would release wild dogs into this cage and they would just maul the Christians and just kill them. Now, he would also take Christians and he would dip them in wax, in hot wax, put them, and then he would tie them under their arms, and he would tie them to a tree, and at night he would ignite them so that there would be light for his parties. Is he a good man? No, he's a bad man. In fact, Christians were living in fear of all of this, and that is the context into which um, Peter writes. Now, in July of 64 AD, Rome burns, and you've probably heard about this, and how many of you have heard Nero fiddled while Rome burned? Well, it's purported that he probably was the, the instigator of the burning of Rome. Now, why did he want Rome to burn? He had this idea that he needed to build and build and build. And a lot of emperors had this idea that what I build will be a testament to my rulership for ages to come, even after I'm dead. There'll be buildings. Oh, yeah, Nero built that. Oh, yeah, Nero built that. And so he wanted to build. But the problem was that there was not enough room in Rome to build. And so it is, it is alleged that he started the fire. It burned for seven days, which is fact. And at the end of seven days, they finally got it put out. Uh, but then a couple of days later, it reignited and burned for another three days. So we got 10 days of fire in Rome, devastated most of the city, and made it possible for him to be a builder again. He could build to his fame. And you could imagine all of the people that were, that were devastated by that. Now, we, if we were living in Rome at that time, we would say, you can't do that to my home. However, Peter writes in that context, and what is his message? His message is, this world is not your home. Now, we get kind of, kind of a little bit unhappy about the political system of our, of our nation, about the way things are going for us. And rightly so. Uh, our nation is not a nation that honors God. Uh, does not put God first. And so therefore, we as Christians are kind of different in that regard. But now we find this thing that we realize, you know, we can be concerned about that. We ought to be concerned about where we live and what's going on. But this world is not our home. Do not get distracted. Do not get distracted by what goes on in our world around us that prevents you from seeing that heaven is our home. Our home is with God. And so whatever good we can do here, let's do good. Let's not avoid that because the more good we do, 
the more people will believe in Christ, the more people will inhabit heaven. And so therefore, that's our goal, is to get people from this world to the next world. Now, 1 Peter 1.1, and it's in your outline there, it says this. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as what? Foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, this word that's foreigners is a, a Greek word that includes, that's been interpreted in several different ways in several different translations. One of them is exiles, okay? And exiles doesn't really give us the flavor for the word that Peter is using here. Sometimes it's called sojourners. You know what a sojourner is? It's a person that's just in the, in the land, just kind of passing through. Okay, I'm on my way to somewhere else, but I'm going to go through your land. And I like that interpretation of sojourner. Sometimes it's an alien. You know, uh, This place is not my residence, not my, my place of citizenship. However, uh, this is where I am. And so, therefore, I might be an alien here. And you might look like an alien at times. You know, when you, when you live a Christian culture, in you know, a non-Christian culture, you're going to look like you might have big eyes and green people kind of thing. Okay? Strangers has been uh, interpreted as strangers, also interpreted as foreigners, as we find in the NIV. Now, I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. Recognize first and foremost that this, this place, this earth, is not our home. We're just passing through. In fact, there's an old gospel song. This world is not my home. I'm just uh, passing through. I would sing it to you, but you would not recognize it. Okay. Now, uh, because you're not here from here, you should not act and live as if you are from here, is, is Peter's kind of inclination here. This is his, his idea. If you're not a citizen of here, don't act like a citizen of here. Have something different about you. So therefore, if we are called to follow Jesus, if we're followers of Jesus, uh, we're not called to look like the rest of the world. What are we called to look like? We're called to look like Jesus. Now, that's going to include some things. It's going to include different values, right? Different perspectives, different ways of seeing people outside. Now, most of us, when we see people that are not of us, not Christians, and we see them struggling, what do we assume? Okay, we assume that they're getting what they deserve, right? They've made some bad choices, and therefore they get what they deserve. Now, when we struggle, when we have a trial, what do we assume? Somebody, somebody did this to me, okay? And we as Christians always blame the devil. You know, we're kind of Flip Wilson kind of people. But we blame the devil. The devil made me do it. Uh, or somebody else in my family made me do this. Somebody made me mad. Have you ever said that? Somebody made me mad? If you're a Christian, you realize a couple of things about yourself. And if, as Christians, we need to recognize that sometimes we have anger, right? In fact, Paul says... Uh, to be angry, yet do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. In other words, he said, make sure your anger is focused at the right thing. Don't be angry at people. Be angry at the source behind what people do that makes them do what makes you mad. Okay? And who's behind that? We have an enemy. He's called Satan. Therefore, we can look to the source behind the behavior and recognize that's who we ought to be angry at. We ought to be angry at the source behind the behavior that makes people do things that causes us to have anger. Second thing we need to recognize, and we're different, remember, we're different. We have anger within us, and sometimes we have situations in which we get a chance to express that anger, right? Okay, that's a polite way of saying people make us mad. But it's not true, because people don't really make you mad. You're really angry, yet generally, for some other source, and somebody who is close to you does something that kind of sets you off. 
And they weren't really the source of your anger, but you just have a chance to spew it on them. We are different, okay? Different values. We have different standards. We have different goals. And so therefore, we are called to be different. So we're going to take a look at 1 Peter in the next four weeks. Today, we're going to talk about different faith in trials, okay? We have a different faith in trials. When it comes to a trial, we have some other source to lean upon and some different ways to look at that, that trial. Next week, we're going to look at different values in an unholy culture. Okay? We have an unholy culture, right? Are we a Christian nation? Do not fool yourself. We are not a Christian nation. As a nation, we don't acknowledge God. In fact, we've asked God to get out of several areas of our lives, right? We've asked him to get out of our schools, right? Okay, we've asked him that we don't want to pray to you. We don't want the Bible. We don't want this. We don't like the Ten Commandments in our public places anymore. We don't want any of that stuff. So God, would you please politely take a back seat? So we've asked God to do that. Do you think God will do that if we ask him to do that? Sure. Yeah. yeah. He'll give you what you ask for many times. The children of Israel, they wanted a king one time. God didn't want them to have a king. He wanted to be their king. And so he asked, he, he, through the prophet, warned the people, if you want a king, here's what's going to happen. He's going to take the best of your land. He's going to take the best of your crops. He's going to take the best of your kids. He's going to take the best of all of your resources. And, and he, he talks about it in terms of tenths. They're going to take a tenth of this and a tenth of that. What was significant there? Ah, oh, it's referring to the tithe. The children of Israel, the people of God, are called to give a tithe to God, a 10% thing of their increase. Okay, 10% donation of their increase to God. And he said, your, your, your king is going to take what duly and rightly belongs to God. And he warned them, and he warned them. And so you would think that God would step in and say, nah, I'm not going to let that happen. You're my chosen people. No, the people wanted a king. He gave them a king. We've asked God to get out of the United States, and he has politely withdrawn in a lot of areas. He's not said, no, you're going to have the Bible in school. No, you're going to be able to pray in school. No, you're going to be able to do this. He hasn't said that. He said, you'll get what you want. So be careful what we want. So we're going to talk about different values in an unholy culture. The third week, we're going to talk about different calling in a dark world. We're called to do something different than the world is called to do. And so therefore, we're going to take a look at our calling. God has said, here's what I want Christians to do. The fourth week, we're going to look at a different perspective in persecution. We're going to come back. We're going to make a full circle here. And persecution is a violent and active opposition to God. It's not just trials and tribulations. It's an active and violent opposition to the things of God. Now, if you're in a difficult time now, this message is just for you. If you're not in a difficult time, I've heard it said many times before, you're either in the middle of a trial, you're getting ready to go into a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. Trials are not optional for Christians, and I'm going to tell you why here today. Let's take a look at verses 6 and 7 of uh, chapter 1. So be truly glad. Okay. Now, remember, what's the context in which he is talking here? He's talking in the context of difficulties, trials, challenges that you face. So be truly glad there is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Now, I want you to circle a phrase there. It's right at the end of the underlining. It says genuine. 
Faith is genuine. I want to just circle that. Because if there's a genuine faith, what does it imply? That there is a false faith or a disingenuous faith, okay? So there's a faith that's not genuine. Now, have you ever met somebody that had a disingenuous faith? I'm going to give you three categories. Number one, inherited faith. Hey, there's an inherited faith. I'm a Christian because my mom and dad were Christians. Most people don't say that. They say, I'm a whatever denomination. You know, I'm a Methodist because my mom and dad were Methodist. I'm a Catholic because my mom and dad were Catholic. And, and most of the time, they don't even say mom and dad. They say mom. You know, my mom was this. My mom was that. And so I've inherited this faith. I'm going to tell you something. Being a Christian because you're in church doesn't count. Okay? Being Christian because you're in church is, is much like being a chicken because you're sitting in a chicken coop. You know, it doesn't work. If you're sitting in a chicken coop, that makes you a chicken. Well, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian. And just because you come from Christian faith or, or heritage, it doesn't mean that you're a Christian. So inherited faith. There's another kind. It's called shallow faith. In fact, Jesus tells a little story in the Gospels about uh, the planter, the sower, the, the parable of the dirt, I like to call it. And he goes out there and he says they planted some seeds and some of it grew up and quickly withered away. And then he goes on and explains this. It's like the person who comes to church. In fact, I'm going to say this. I have seen this over and over and over again in our church here. People come to church, they hear the word, they get very excited. You know, and in six months, you don't see them anymore. You know what happens? They are the parable of the dirt. They get some, they get some inclination, they get some, some attraction to Christ, and they start getting excited about it, and then the worries of this world come about. You know, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? You know, I get distracted by that. What am I going to get for money? What am I going to get for a job? What am I going to get for an education? What am I going to do? And uh, so I get so distracted that I forget the thing that really attracted me to Jesus. And pretty soon it's, it's oh, God provided me a job. Oh, but this job causes me to work on Sundays. I can't go to church anymore. I'm going to say this. If God provides you a job and you have to work on Sunday, question very seriously whether God provided that job. I knew it would get really quiet then. But you guys don't have jobs on Sunday because you're here. But there are some people that you know that can't come to church because they have jobs. Now, there are some, and I'm going to say there are some, that are vital. And I'll give some room for that so that I don't have to argue with you. But I am going to say that God wants our love first and foremost. He wants us to, to, and I remember when I left another church that I was pastoring and I had been sick for a while and I went back to work and I got a job at Walmart. Now, I remember when I went to interview for that job, I went to Walmart and I said, they said, oh, what's your availability? I said, I can work anytime you want me to work except Sunday. I will not work Sunday. Oh, okay. Oh, what do you do on Sunday? Oh, well, I pastor a little church and blah, blah, blah. And oh, that's cool. And you know what happens when people hear that you're a Christian and that you value God? They recognize that you have some values that are different than most people. Oh, this guy probably won't steal from us. He'll be honest with us. He'll show up. He has values. And so therefore, those Christian values are going to be to our benefit. You can have Sunday off all day long. You know, and I never had to worry about that. I suggest that if you're a Christian and you get a job offer that says you have to work on Sunday, negotiate first, okay? Negotiate first, okay? So shallow faith. There's another kind of faith, and it's conditional faith. And conditional faith is usually revealed when people say things like, well, how could 
you, you see them and you say, man, I haven't seen you in church for a while. And they say, yeah, we had an experience. How could God let this happen? You know, and that's conditional. I'll follow God. I'll love God. I'll worship God as long as nothing bad happens. And it's conditional. It's based on him performing how I expect him to perform. How many of you have ever expected God to do something that he has not promised that he would do? We just finished a series, a couple, two message series last week. And the whole premise of the thing was, don't build your faith on things that God has not said he would do. Don't build your faith based on your expectations of what, God, what you think God should do. Base your faith on what God has promised he said, that he said he would do. What he has promised in his word that he would do. So make sure that you don't have conditional faith. Okay, I'm going to ask a question here. What good are trials then? What good are trials? Trials are great things. I pray, and don't get me wrong, we'll probably have half the crowd here next week, uh, but I pray that every one of you goes through a crisis of faith. Okay, I pray that every one of you goes through a trial. Here's why. Number one, trials reveal your faith. Trials reveal what you really, really trust. Now, this faith is built on two things. And I always ask the question when people are coming and they're having a trial and they don't know what to do. I'll ask two questions. You might want to write these down because you want to ask yourself these two questions. Number one, what do I believe? What do I believe about this situation? Okay. I remember when I got cancer uh, and the doctor diagnosed, oh yeah, you've got cancer and you know, you got some options. You can do this chemotherapy. You can do radiation therapy or we can do surgery and blah, blah, blah. And I, I got to thinking, you know, number one, what do I believe? Do I believe that this is terminal? Do I believe that this is uh, something not from God? You know, is this disease, is this cancer from God or not from God? You know, you have to struggle with those things. Would God let that happen to somebody who loves him? And I came to the conclusion, yes, he would. You know, and, and we're going to get to that second in the second thing here. Uh, but God will let some difficult things happen to you. God will let cancer happen in your life. How many of you here today have ever had cancer or know somebody who has had cancer? Okay, yeah. And how many of you have ever thought they got cancer because God was punishing them? I hope you don't believe that, but a lot of people believe that when a bad thing happens, it's God punishing them. God will let some bad things, some trials come into your life because another, another translation for the word trials is test. Test. God's going to give us a test every once in a while to evaluate our faith. What do we truly believe? And the second question that we should always ask ourselves is, who do we trust? What do we believe? Who do we trust? That will reveal, if you do a detailed little analysis of that, maybe write some things down. What do I believe? I believe this, 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 this. Who do I trust? I trust so-and-so, I trust so-and-so, I trust God. Okay, that will reveal your faith. Do you trust the doctors more than you trust God? <laughs> Most of us have had enough experience with doctors to say no. Okay, but the truth of the matter is there's some people that would rather trust their doctor than trust God. And I'm not saying don't trust your doctor. But what I am saying is that in 1 Peter 1, 7, it says, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. And for some of us, it will show that it's not genuine. I'm trusting something else. Okay. Now I say this, a faith that's been tested is a faith that can be trusted. Okay. If you've never had a test to your faith, you don't know if you can trust it or not. 
You have some head knowledge. And this is one of the things that I am big on these days. And that is most of the time our faith is built on what we know. Okay, what we read, what we learn. It's based on knowledge. It is not always based on experience. When you think about Abraham, and we're studying Abraham in our small group, uh, when you look at Abraham's life, God didn't give him a bunch of written stuff. Here's who I am. Here's why you can trust me. Da, 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 da. He just showed him. He was faithful to Abraham, and God, and, and God was faithful to Abraham. Abraham realized, I can trust my experience with God. Now, if most of us just have Bible knowledge, you know, we know what God's done in other people's lives and other times in history and stuff, and that's good to know, and I want you to know that. But I also want you to have some personal experience with God. That's why he gives us trials or tests, so that we can have personal experience with him. In Luke chapter 22, uh, Peter is having this experience with Jesus, and Simon is the same as Peter. And Peter is kind of one of these guys that, I don't know, he's a little bit bold, kind of. Bold in his own way. Not bold in the sense, in his early years, he's not bold for Christ. He's bold for Jesus, and he wants to do that. But he's not bold in spiritual matters. He's, he hasn't had those formed yet. He's not had enough experience. And Jesus is getting ready, and he says, you know, uh, no matter what happens to you, Jesus, I've got your back. I will never leave you. I'll never leave you. I'll be there. I will be the man. I will got your back. Don't worry ever. You've got me. And I could imagine Jesus just going, whoa. I don't know. <laughs> that's a, if that's all I've got, I'm in trouble. But here's what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Okay? He's going to sift you. Now, you know what happens when you sift wheat? You find out what's really in it. Okay? You sift it, and some of the stuff falls through, some of the stuff stays in the sieve, and, and you separate that. Okay? You separate the wheat from the chaff, is what it says. Okay? Now, he, that's what Satan has demanded to do with Peter. When he says, I'll never leave you, don't worry, Satan says, let's see if that's true. How'd that turn out for Peter? Well, he denied Jesus three times. Okay? And it was a faith-building exercise. Just because it happens to Peter doesn't mean he was faithless. But Jesus uses that experience to show him, this is what your faith really is. Now it needs to be something else. So therefore, grow in your faith. Now notice what he says. But I have prayed for you, Simon. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Did Peter's faith fail? No. No. In the end, his faith proved true. What does Jesus say to him when he meets him out on the beach there after he's, he's resurrected? He says, hey, Peter, do you love me? He goes, yeah, I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? at him again says, yeah, yeah, I answered that once, but yeah, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And I think the third time that Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? The light went on for him. I denied him three times. He's given me three chances to reaffirm my faith and trust and love for him. He says, okay, go feed my sheep. He goes, ah. Oh. Now, did his faith fail? Faltered for a little bit. But it did not fail. Many times we see failure as the end. Failure or faltering is a step toward genuine faith. I pray that when we have this thing in us that says, I expect Jesus to do this, I expect God to do that, and it doesn't happen, it causes us to take a step back and say, whoa. And we falter a little bit. We may say, oh, he didn't pull through. Why not? 
and we find out why not because we had false beliefs or we expected him to do something he said he would not do or that he had not said he would do. And so therefore we build on that. And then our faith is made pure. Now notice what it says here at the end of the passage here. He says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, when you've realized the shallowness of your faith and it has been made strong again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers with what has happened in your life. The experience that you've had with Jesus, use that to fill the lives of other people with your experience. Now, the early years, he was obnoxious. Let's be honest. He was obnoxious. He was braggadocious. He was impulsive. He was cocky. And he was very inconsistent. Okay. Now, through that, we would say his faith failed. Eh, not true. Because when you see the later years, he was faithful, he was devoted, he was patient, he was bold. So you see this faith-building experience happen in his life, and it comes because of the trials that he experiences in life. Now, he ends up denying Jesus three times. I love it when Peter denies. There's a little girl that comes up to him, you know, and she's got this Pokemon lunch pail. And she says, oh, you know Jesus, don't you? No. He gets scared of this little girl with the Pokemon lunch pail. And he says, no, no, I don't know him. Well, what was she going to do to him? You know? Yeah, I know Jesus, man. What a bummer that he died, huh? What a bummer that he's about to die, rather. And so therefore, you know, why couldn't he have said that to the little girl? No, he denies her. So in his early years. But then he has these faith-building experiences. He was willing to go and die for Jesus. He was willing to be martyred. And the way that Peter died, there are, there are evidences that he was a martyr at the end. He was willing to die for what he believed. He proves to be true. James tells us some more things about this faith in James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. He also says, consider it pure joy. Consider it Pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really look at it with joy. You know, I, I don't, this is pure joy. There's no bad stuff here. This is pure joy. But when we see it from the perspective of Jesus, when we see it from the perspective of God, and it gives me a chance to grow my faith solidly as it should be built, man, that's joyful. Now I know exactly what I can trust God for. He says in verse number three, because you know that the testing of your faith does what? It produces perseverance. Remember the guys that come to church, you know, and in a couple of weeks and six months, they're gone because they have shallow faith. Perseverance is what brings you back every week. Perseverance. I want to know more about Jesus. I want to be, have more experience with him. I want to know uh, more how to love him. I want to have greater uh, opportunities for service to him. And so perseverance brings us back. But perseverance finishes its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Perseverance is the difference between people who grow in faith and people who do not. So therefore, you might be racked with pain and you might be in a position where you say, ah, oh, gosh, nothing's ever going to get better. I know people in this church today that suffer from pain every day of their life, every day of their life. And they see no chance. They see no benefit. They see no future. They see no relief from that. But promise you this, there is purpose in whatever pain you go through, whatever relational pain you experience, whatever physical pain you experience, whatever spiritual pain you experience, there is purpose in that. And we're going to find out here in a minute because God never wastes a hurt. Number two, 
What's the purpose? Trials draw you closer to God. When you realize that there's so much stuff out there that I could make available to me to solve my problem or do whatever, so many ways of handling it, always let your trials and your tribulations draw you close to him. Verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter 1. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that the joy of this, the reward for trusting him, will be the resolution of your trial. It doesn't say that. But he says, have a longer look at what's going on. And we may suffer trials, we may suffer tribulation, we may suffer you know, uh, exclusion from groups, we may suffer all of those things, but it's only going to be for a few years. You know, how long do you expect to live here? I expect to live to 103 years old. Okay? That's about four years from now. <laughs> but the truth is, there's an end to everyone's life here on this planet. And then there's something that's going to last forever. Then you're going to be in the presence of God. Then you're going to be welcomed into heaven by Jesus. And I can't tell you what that's like. It has not happened for me yet. I'm closer than some of you. But it has not happened yet. But I do know this. It's going to be way better than what I've experienced here. And I've been married to the best woman in the world. So it's going to be better than that even. And I can't imagine that. But trials draw you closer to God because in the end, the reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your soul. The good news isn't that, that, isn't that God saved us from our trials. God doesn't save us from our trials. That's why I say, you know, I hear people every once in a while, you know, they'll say, oh, if you just become a Christian, all of these troubles would go away. No, you just get a new set of troubles because God wants to refine your faith. God wants to make you strong. God wants to have experience with you to where you trust him and him alone. So therefore, God saves you not from your trials, but God saves you from your what? Sinfulness. God saves you from your sinfulness. And so therefore, we have this idea, that we have this vision of what we will become when we leave this planet. Now, a lot of people have said, and we've said this in our last series, a lot of people will tell you that God won't give you more than you can handle. False. False. God will always give you more than you can handle. God says, I want to hold your hand through it. And I want you to go with me through this difficulty, through this trial, through this difficult time of life, because I want your trial to draw you close to me. So I'm going to give you more than you can handle. And it will prove who you trust. What do you believe? Who do you trust? Eventually, Peter becomes known as what? The rock. 